Our series is called Believe. We've taken the title of the series from the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, and verse 31 that says this, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the stuff that John put in the gospel of John. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote this gospel, this story of Jesus' life, so that you and I would read it and that we would walk away believing the truth about who Jesus is. Our passage is interesting because in our passage there are three groups of people who do not believe the truth about Jesus. You see Jesus' brothers, at this point in the story, they do not believe. Rather than believing in Jesus, they're trying to manipulate Jesus, and really they're mocking Jesus. They're making fun of Jesus. You see the crowd in Jerusalem, the people who have gathered for the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, these people are largely confused in this story. They just don't know what to make of Jesus one way or the other. And then lastly, you see, quote-unquote, the Jews. And we've talked about this phrase in the Gospel of John. It's not an ethnic slur. It's not a racial slur. It's John's little catchphrase. It's John's way of describing the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who are opposed to Jesus and who eventually are going to lead to his execution. They are trying to back Jesus into some sort of theological corner where his only option is crying uncle. And so it's an interesting thing. In a book written so that we would believe, we come to a passage in which there are three groups of people who do not believe, and all of this is taking place at a feast in Jerusalem. This is on your notes on the front page. The events of John 7 and 8 took place during the Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Essentially what's happened in the storyline of the Gospel of John is we have moved from the spring to the fall. If you look at John chapter 5 and chapter 6, the passages we've been recently working through, all of those verses take place in the spring during the Passover. And essentially, six months or so have passed. It's now the fall, and the Jews are gathering once again in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths, or I'm going to refer to it as the Feast of of tabernacles. This was a, an important feast in Jewish life. It was a seven-day feast. Many Jews would travel to Jerusalem for this feast. It was in the month of Tishri, and it ran from the 15th to the 21st. And many of these pilgrims who came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, while they would, were there, would actually live in a quote-unquote booth or a quote-unquote tent, or you could even use the word tabernacle. And at this feast, as they travel to Jerusalem, they're living in these tents. They're remembering there was a time when God saved us out of slavery in Egypt, and we wandered around in the desert, and we lived in tents, and God lived in the midst of us in a tent, a tabernacle. And they're looking back, and they're remembering that God was with them in their wandering. They're remembering that God provided for them manna, food to eat every day, and they're remembering that God was faithful to meet all of their needs during this wilderness wandering. And when they celebrate this feast in the fall time, they're also sort of celebrating the harvest. And the provision may not be miraculous like the manna, but there was an acknowledgement, God, you have provided for your people once again. Just like you did in the wilderness, you've provided this harvest so that we can eat 
and we can live and you're sustaining us and you're providing for us. All of this taking place during this seven-day feast. Now, just one quick side note. On the eighth day of the feast, it was a big day. It was a, a celebratory day. And all of these rituals that they'd been doing all week long sort of came to a culmination. And on the eighth day, we're going to talk about this in weeks to come, there was a big ceremony that involved water, and there was a big ceremony that involved light. And it's during this feast where they're thinking about water and light and all of these rituals they're going through that Jesus is going to stand up and he's going to say, I have living water to offer you. Right? They're celebrating this feast and they're literally going through religious ritual involving water. And Jesus is almost standing on the side saying, I have living water that you can have. And Jesus is going to look at these people and he's going to say, I'm the light of the world. You're lighting this candle in this big celebration of the feast, but I'm the light of the world. The fulfillment of this feast is actually in your presence. And that's an idea that we're going to talk about this morning. So many Jews have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Included in that group are Jesus' brothers. And John gives us an interesting insight into Jesus' brothers. He tells us that the brothers do not believe Jesus. They're not on board with all the things that Jesus is doing and all the things Jesus is claiming about himself. They think he's mistaken. They think he's confused. They think he's crazy. They think he's an egomaniac. They're just not on board. They don't believe it. And when you look at John 7, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him, helps you understand verse 3 and verse 4. When they say to Jesus, go up to the feast, go up to Jerusalem and show yourselves. You can do all these great things. Go show everyone how great you are. They're not really encouraging Jesus to reveal his glory to everyone. They're really trying to expose Jesus as the fraud that they think he is. And there's a little bit of brothers poking at each other. You know, siblings really know how to get under skin, right? And the brothers here are looking at Jesus. We just read in John 6 that most of his disciples abandoned him. He preaches the Bread of Life discourse. Hunter talked about this last week. And almost all of his disciples just walk away. And six months have gone by. Jesus has stayed up in Galilee. His popularity has not increased because his message has not changed. And here's his brothers saying, hey, Jesus, if you're such a big deal, why don't you go up and show everyone how big of a deal you really are? And John pulls back the curtain and he says his brothers did not believe in him. One more detail I need to put in place before we jump in. In John 7, 21, Jesus refers to a work. He says, I did one work among you. When he's talking in verse 21 about a work, he's talking about the invalid he healed at the pool of Bethesda, and we talked about that in John chapter 5. This was about a year earlier in the timeline. It was the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem that we know about. And he walks into Jerusalem, he walks into the pool of Bethesda, there's a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And Jesus heals the man, and he tells him to get up, and he makes him whole. And he does it on the Sabbath. And you remember that the Pharisees had this silly little rule that said medical care could only be administered on the Sabbath if it was a life or death situation. Otherwise, you needed to wait one more day. And everyone looks at Jesus and says, this guy's been laying around for 38 years. He's going to make it one more day. 
And Jesus says, I don't want anything to do with your rules and your your man-made additions to the Word of God. And he intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath day, which results in the Jews seeking to kill Jesus. You read that in John 5.18. Jesus heals this man. He does it on the Sabbath. He won't back down or apologize. And in response, the Jews go out and they say, this man, Jesus, has to die. And if you like to make notes in your Bible, you should make a note by John 5.18 and maybe draw a line or a star or a reference and connect it with John 7.1. Because about a year has gone by, but the agenda, the plan, the schemes of the Jews has not changed at all. They're seeking to kill Jesus in chapter 5, John 7 verse 1. Jesus went about in Galilee where most of his disciples had abandoned him. But he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. All of that brings us to the big idea of our passage, which is this. Jesus came to tabernacle among us so that he might die for us. Jesus came to dwell or to live or to tent or to booth or to tabernacle among us so that he could die for us. I want you to, in your mind, try to think of a situation where you found yourself at the right place at the right time. Finding yourself at the right place at the right time. That's a phrase we throw around every now and then. I'll tell you about a a time in my life where I was at the right place at the right time. And I've shared this with you at some point in time, but I'm going to share it with you again because it's one of my favorite stories from life. We'd lived here about a year uh, in Odessa. And it was a Saturday. We had nothing to do. And my girls, Clayton wasn't born yet, but my girls said, hey, let's go uh, play golf. Meaning, let's go to the driving range and we're going to swing and whack at the dirt and maybe a ball will roll down the way a little bit. So I said, great, let's go. So we go to the driving range over off to the side at UTPB. And believe it or not, it's windy that day. The wind is blowing and we're there on the driving range. And the wind is blowing just straight into our face. Just straight at us. Hard, hard wind. And we're out there, we're hitting golf balls, we're hanging out. There's about 20 people on the driving range. There's a lot of people there that afternoon. And I'm hitting golf balls, and I just happen to look up downrange about 100 yards, and I see a piece of trash sort of tumbling in the wind. And, you know, that's not uncommon in Odessa, is it, to see trash blowing in the wind. And so I just, I'm watching it, and it's coming at me, and I'm, I'm just almost like, tractor beam focused on it. I, I, I don't know why. It's way out there and it's blowing towards me. And I stop hitting golf balls and I just watch it. And it blows and it blows. And it's kind of like Plinko. You know, Plinko where the thing bounces all over and you, where's it going to end up? And it kind of keeps coming back to me and it blows literally right up in between my feet. And I bend down and I pick it up and it's not trash. It's a $20 bill. Just blowing down the driving range. 20 people or so on the range. It's windy. We just happened to be there at the right time, at the right place. And I picked up a $20 bill. It was a great day. (laughs) Great day. 20 bucks for going to the driving range. So you can probably think of something in your life where you say, you know, I, I remember this one time I was at the right place at the right time. Maybe there's a situation that immediately comes to your mind where you say, well, that's nice. 20 bucks is great, but I always seem to be at the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people and things just don't break my way in the right situation. John 7 is interesting. In John 7, you have a group of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem who want 
to murder Jesus. They are actively planning to kill this man for the things that he's doing and the things that he's saying. But what you have is the right people at the right place at the wrong time. It's not the time for Jesus to die. It is not the plan that Jesus would die for the sins of his people during the Feast of Tabernacles. The plan is that he's going to die during the Passover, and that's about six more months away. But it's just fascinating to read this story where everything is really in motion. Everything's moving in the right direction. You know where this is headed. Jesus came to die for his people. You've got these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. They're actively planning to kill Jesus. Right people, right place. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's just not the right time yet. And John gives you this little episode where Jesus goes up and he has interaction first with his brothers and then with the crowds and the leaders in Jerusalem. And when you read this little, little interaction, not a lot happens here. But when you read this conversation and you think about the, the clues that John is, is giving us along the way, you come away saying, there's some important things that this passage teaches me about Jesus. And there's some important things that this passage teaches me about discipleship. And that's what I want you to see this morning. I want you to see a few simple but important truths about Jesus. And then I want you to see two simple but important truths about what does it mean to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so we'll start with this. What does the story teach me about Jesus? Number one, the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to pull that out of this story. All you have to do is listen to Jesus in verse 7. He's talking with his brothers, and they have said in verse 4, why don't you go up and show yourself to the world? And what they have in mind when they use that phrase, the world, is go show everybody. Why stay up here in Galilee in the backwoods where there's not a lot of people and no one is really even following you anymore, go to the feast. Everyone's going to be there and show yourselves openly to all of these people. And in response, Jesus says, well, my time has not yet come. Your time is here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. The world hates me. Why? Jesus explains why. He says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's just an interesting thing for Jesus to say as you're reading through the Gospel of John. Because previously in the Gospel of John, we saw a verse like John 3.16. John 3.16 says, God loved the world. He so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God, God has love for the world, for this fallen mess of sinful humanity. God shows love to the world, and he sends Jesus. And the question is, is that love reciprocal? And Jesus answers, and he says, it's absolutely not reciprocal. The world does not love God. The world actually hates God. The world hates Jesus. Why? Because he's exposing their sin. It's like he's taking the Pharisees and he's putting them up on the, the pedestal they always wanted to be on, but he's exposing them as a bunch of rule-keeping, self-righteous hypocrites. 
You think you're going to be saved because of your rule keeping. And he just shows everybody who they really are. And he confronts the Sadducees. And the Sadducees want Jesus dead. He, he puts the Sadducees up on the pedestal and he exposes them. You have this unholy alliance with the Romans and you, you don't agree with them on anything, but you submit to them and you, you do whatever they want you to do so you can hang on to your power. He's exposing the hypocrisy of everybody around him. And he says, the response is that the world hates me doesn't hate you, he says to his brothers, but it hates me. The world hates me. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to pray. He's praying to the Father about his disciples, and he says this, I, Jesus, have given them, disciples, your word. What's the result of that? The result is that the world hates them. The world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Disciples of Jesus have been born again. They've been born from above. They are otherworldly. Jesus says, not only does the world hate me, but the world hates those who are like me, those who believe in my word, those who cling to my word. The world has hatred for those people. I think this is one of the fundamental flaws in the idea that at church we can be cool enough to attract lost people to come in. There's a lot of churches who operate with that assumption. If we just have a cool enough, relevant enough, hip enough, happening enough something going on at church, all those people who aren't in church, they're just going to want to come. It's going to be so exciting. It's going to be so great. They're just going to be sort of drawn in by our coolness. And then once they get here, we can tell them about Jesus. There's a problem with that mindset, a very serious problem. Those people hate Jesus. The world hates Jesus. All of us at one point in time hated Jesus. We were enemies of Jesus. And your coolness or my coolness or wearing the right thing or having the right kind of performance is not going to overcome that hatred. The only thing that will overcome that hatred is the grace of God shared through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hipness and coolness won't do it. It's an impossible task. So the world hates Jesus, and here's the good news. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father. We saw it in John 3.16. God loved the world. The world hates him, but God has love for the world, and he sends Jesus. You see it in verse 16. Jesus is in the temple and he says, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Someone has sent me. The Father has sent me. Look what he says in verse 18. He talks about the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him. The Father sent the Son and his testimony is true in him. There is no falsehood. Look, this is the beauty of the Christian gospel. This is what sets Christianity and what we celebrate on a Sunday morning apart from every other faith on the, on the planet. The Bible teaches us that in the beginning, God created people to know him and to enjoy his love and his glory and his goodness. That's why we're, we were created. And the Bible very quickly explains that as creatures, we bowed up against that, we stiffened our necks towards that, and we said we want nothing to do with it. We rebelled as creatures, and we defied our Creator. And at that moment, God could have, with complete justification, 
wiped his hands of us and said, I'm done with these people. These ungrateful creatures who have defied my goodness and my glory. They've defied the purpose for which I created them. He could have just been done with us. And instead, he sent someone to save us. He's not obligated to do it. But out of his love and his grace and his mercy, he sends Jesus. John chapter 1 describes the whole scene. Look what we read. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see the whole thing right there of God sending someone to save his people, but they don't receive him because they hate him. The world hates Jesus. The world's not looking for Jesus. They're not interested in Jesus. And God in his mercy is sending Jesus to save people, to live among people, to show love for people. Jesus did that when he walked into Jerusalem and he saw a man laying by the pool who had been laying there for almost four decades, 38 years. And it was the Sabbath, and Jesus could have avoided a lot of controversy if he had just waited about 12 hours till the next day came, and then he could have healed this guy. But instead, he heals him. He has compassion on this man. He's laid there for 38 years. Why make him lay any longer? And he shows love to this man and he heals him and he gets up. And how do all of the people in Jerusalem respond when Jesus does this? Do they give him a standing ovation? Do they say, hey, we want your autograph? Do they say, hey, that's the greatest thing. You're the best. What do we need to do to follow you and get on board with what you're doing? No, they don't do any of that. They argue. Jesus heals a man who's been laying on the ground for four decades and all they want to do is argue about the Sabbath. Well, you really should have waited one more day to do that, Jesus. Because the law says you can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus exposes them at the end of our passage. He just completely exposes them and he says, look, you're upholding this Sabbath law. Don't work on the Sabbath. And you're using the law to sort of take a pass on loving your neighbor. And then he exposes them and he says, but look, on the, on the Sabbath you keep other parts of the law. You circumcise on the Sabbath. Right? You're following one part of the law, even when it kind of rubs up with another part of the law. You're doing that. Why shouldn't I show love to this man? It's in the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't invent that in the New Testament. It's right there square in the old. Why would I not show love to this man, whether it's the Sabbath or not the Sabbath? And he heals him. And the great irony is this, when Jesus shows love to this man, it just exposes how unloving the rest of them are. That's what Jesus is talking about, where he's talking about, I testify that its works are evil. The words of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the actions of Jesus are like this giant floodlight shining on everyone in this story, showing just how dirty they are. What's true then is true today. The closer you get to Jesus, the closer you see him for, tr- for who he truly is, the, the closer you get to his holiness and his glory and his beauty, that light of who he is will shine on you and expose you. These people were exposed. The world hates Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father. Number three, 
Jesus' death could not be rushed. And this is the great tension in the story. I just think it's so fascinating. There's two conversations. There's a conversation with his brother and there's a conversation in Jerusalem. Both of them set up with a reminder that they want Jesus dead. The Jews want Jesus dead. John 7 verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. John 7, 11, the Jews are looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? Why do they want to know where he is? Because they want him dead. And they think maybe this is a good time. They don't want an autograph. They don't want a, a Q&A session. They don't want to listen to him or follow him as a disciple. They want to murder him. And they're seeking him. And John sort of pulls the curtain back and he's showing us these guys wanted Jesus dead. Jesus pulls the curtain back in verse 19 where he says, why do you seek to kill me? You're accusing me of breaking the law, but you don't keep the law. Why would you seek to put me to death? The crowd's oblivious. The crowd says, what, what is the matter with this guy? Did, did you have a demon? Do you have some kind of persecution complex? Do you, are you paranoid? Are you hearing voices, Jesus? What do you, why do you think everyone's out to get you? Everyone's out to kill you. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. John hasn't cued them in in verse 1 and verse 11. And there's confusion here. But John does paint a fascinating scene. Just think about what he's telling us. Jesus came to live among us that he might die for us. That's why he came. These men want Jesus dead. That seems to be sort of a, a couple of puzzle pieces coming together. They want Jesus dead. Jesus came to die. Let's get on with it, right? Wrong. Jesus says, my time, my hour has not yet come. This isn't going to unfold on their timeline. It's going to unfold on God's timeline. Jesus dying on the cross is not just an example of, you know, that was unfortunate, wrong guy, wrong place, wrong time, bad situation. Hopefully God can make the best of that. Jesus dying on the cross was the right guy at the right place at the right time. And God was in complete control. The Father is in complete control of everything that is happening. And it will unfold on his timeline. Let me just give you a few examples of what this looks like in the scriptures. Galatians 4. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why did it happen when it happened? Because at that moment, it was the fullness of time. It was the perfect time. It was the planned time. Peter explains it like this, 1 Peter 1. He says, You were ransomed. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. That happened at the cross. And he says he was like a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown when? Before the foundation of the world. God's not just sort of calling audibles as he goes through this thing, hoping for everything to just fall into place at the right moment. This was a plan, a plan made before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times. At the fullness of time, God unfolds this plan, and it will all unfold perfectly on his timeline. His death will not be rushed. You know, in chapter 6, the crowd wanted to take Jesus and make him king. 
It wasn't the right time for that. That will happen someday, but it will happen on God's timeline, not their timeline, not our timeline. In John 7, they want Jesus dead. But that was not going to happen until the perfect moment came, and this simply wasn't it. That's a few things we learn about Jesus. What do we learn about discipleship? Let me give you two ideas. Number one, disciples submit to Jesus. That is so obvious that on the face of it, it's not even worth filling in a blank. Essentially, I'm just asking you to write a definition down. That's what a disciple is, someone who listens and follows and submits. But it's worth pointing out, because in our day and age, we seem to be very, very confused about this idea of disciples actually submitting to Jesus. In this passage, the brothers aren't there yet. The brothers are going to get there. Jesus' brothers, the ones who are poking him and mocking him, eventually they're going to get there. They're going to be disciples. They're not even going to identify themselves as brothers of Jesus. They're going to identify themselves eventually as slaves of Jesus. They're going to get this idea of submission, but they don't get it yet. Instead, they're trying to manipulate Jesus. They're trying to expose Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to do what they want him to to do, and Jesus has none of it. The people in Jerusalem are no different. The Jews are no different. I said earlier, they want to back Jesus into this theological corner where he looks like a fool, and all he can do is just sort of throw his hands in the air and say, I, I give up. Right? There is no submission to Jesus from the brothers or from the people in Jerusalem. What both of them are trying to do is manipulate and control Jesus. That's not what disciples do. Disciples are not connected with Jesus to manipulate him or to control him. Sometimes you and I see this on a very crass level. Sometimes we see it on television with certain preachers who get on and talk about, you know, if you do this, God will be obligated to do that. Sometimes you see it on social media where somebody shares a picture or a quote or something and the, you know, the, the thing they share or the thing they post says something like, share this so God will give you a blessing. You understand that's not how it works, right? We all understand that's not how it works. God's not up there saying, man, I got this great blessing for you. If you would just hit the share button, I can turn it loose. I'm just waiting can't do it till you like it and share it. I'm waiting. That's not how it works. That's Christianized magic. Right? Magic is the idea that you can say certain things and do certain things and get an expected result. That's Christianized magic. You do the right stuff, you say the right thing, you share the right whatever on social media, and then God's going to come through with it. And when we talk about it, we all kind of nervously laugh and we say, oh, those people... That's my dear Aunt Sally, those people. Oh, man, those people are crazy. Let me give you a, a more real-life example of how it sometimes plays out. Talk to somebody whose life is in complete chaos and crisis. A church-going person, somebody who loves the Lord and has been following the Lord. Many times those people in conversations with a pastor or somebody that they're close to 
will say something to this effect, right? Life is just not what you want it to be. It's really, really bad. It's really, really hard. And those people will say something to this effect. I just don't understand why it's like this. I mean, for 20 years, I've gone to church. For 20 years, I gave my tithes and offerings. I took my kids to church. I tried to do all the right things. Like, I've tried to, I've tried to, to honor the Lord in all these areas of my life, and this is how God repays me? This is what God allows me to go through? Those people have just cracked a window in their heart, and they've sort of shown you what's really happening. All those years and all those Sunday school classes and all those offerings they dropped in the box really weren't about honoring the Lord and loving the Lord simply for who He is. They were just a religious program of activities that people went through thinking in the end, God's going to take care of me the way I think I ought to be taken care of. It was all done with a very subtle and a very quiet expectation of maybe we could call it payback in the end. That's just not what discipleship is. Discipleship is not about sharing something on social media that then forces God to come through in your life some way, somehow. Discipleship is not about coming in this room week after week after week so that God will, in the end, give you a great job or a great family or great health or whatever. Discipleship, at its most basic level, is about submission. I'm submitting to you, Jesus, and I'm not doing it for what I can get out of it. I'm doing it because of who you are. Right? That's what the disciples said to Jesus at the end of John 6. Hunter preached on this. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. What other choice do we have in light of who you are and what you've come to accomplish but to submit to you and to trust you with the rest of our lives? Whether that looks like the way we think it ought to look or whether it looks completely different. Disciples submit to Jesus. They don't try to manipulate Jesus. They don't try to control Jesus. They don't try to back Jesus into a corner so that he gets on board with their agenda. They submit. Secondly, they believe. Disciples believe Jesus died for sinners. And I've intentionally saved the strangest part of this passage for, for the last. Some of you noticed it as we read it. Some of you maybe weren't even thinking about the songs we sang too much because you were trying to wrestle with this strange situation that John describes between Jesus and his brothers in the feast. Just track with me on what happens in this passage. The brothers say to Jesus, hey, we're going up for the feast. You should go up for the feast. You could show everyone how great you are. Jesus looks at his brothers and he says, I'm not going. That's Jesus. The perfect, sinless, Never told a lie, son of God. I'm not going. Next paragraph. He goes. Secretly. Next paragraph. He opens his mouth and he teaches publicly. That's kind of strange, right? Hey, you should go. No, I'm not going. But I'm going. Secretly. But then when I'm ready, I'm going to be public. Like, at best, you read that on the surface and you say, oh, he looks kind of wishy-washy there. And he's kind of changing his mind, had a change of heart. At worst, you look at it 
And you say, well, he just told a lie. He told him he wasn't going to go and he had plans to go all along. How in the world do you make sense of that? You should go. I'm not going. I'm going secretly. Now I'm going publicly to teach. I think you keep two thoughts in mind. One, John has pulled back the curtain on the brothers and their motivation. And when Jesus says to them, I am not going to the feast, I think part of what he's saying to the brothers is, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm not going up on your timetable. I'm not going up for your agenda. I'm not going up to do a bunch of signs like some kind of Vegas performer and awe and ooh and impress the crowds with how great I am. I just ran the crowds off six months ago, and I haven't tried to get them back. I'm not going up to do what you want me to do. I will not be manipulated. I will not be controlled. I will not be backed into any corner. And so he says to the brothers, no, I'm not going up. And in the context of that conversation, what they are saying is, go up and make a spectacle of yourself. And Jesus looks at them and says, absolutely not. I'm not going. I think there's something else too. Earlier I said that This feast was the Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And I just want you to think about what's happening at this feast in the context of the Gospel of John. Do you remember what we read in John chapter 1? I know it's been a while back. John 1, verse 14, says, The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Literally, he tented or he tabernacled among us. The word became flesh. He tabernacled among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast. It's not like he can just go up to Jerusalem and celebrate in the same way that everyone else is celebrating. All these pilgrims that travel up geographically up the mountain to Jerusalem and they take their little tents and they set their tents up in and outside and around Jerusalem and they stand around and they talk about, oh, remember God's provision. Remember when we lived in tents. Remember how he provided food. Remember he's blessed us with another harvest. All of these things that they're celebrating are pointing you to someone and the someone is Jesus. I mean, what is Jesus going to do? Go up and stay in a tent in Jerusalem? He is literally God tenting among us. One Bible commentator describes the situation like this. I think it's helpful. Jesus could not be a normal participant at the feast, for he is the tabernacle, the thing to be celebrated. And I think if you have eyes to see it, John is painting one of the most beautiful pictures you see in all of the scriptures. A few months back, we looked at John 2. John 2 took place during the Passover. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, he clears the temple of the money changers and the animals and all the nonsense. And the only one left standing in the temple of God after Jesus clears it is the lamb. Not the lambs that were going to be slaughtered and eaten, but the true lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He was the fulfillment of that that feast. He was the fulfillment of that celebration. Everyone's looking backward when they should have been looking forward. It's the exact same thing in John 7. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's the Feast of Booths. Everyone's living in their tents. They flooded Jerusalem. They're looking back and remembering 
what God had done to save them in the Exodus when they should have also been looking forward and they should have seen Jesus as God come to tabernacle among us. Why? Just to have a camp out? Just to hang out and heal invalids who had been laying there for 38 years? No. He came to tabernacle among us so that he could die for us. Not on man's timeline, but on God's timeline. John writes this little interlude. It's not a lot that happens, just one trip and two conversations. But he wants you to see who Jesus is. He is God come to live among us, come to tabernacle among us so that he can die for us. And John wants you to believe. Not just like pray a prayer, raise your hand, sign a card. He wants you to believe as a disciple, somebody who submits to Jesus. That's my prayer for you this morning, and that's how we're going to end. So you bow and let's pray.